Welcome, everyone, to Great Jewish Personalities. Tonight's personality is the famous Hillel, Hillel the Elder, Hillel the Babylonian, is a you know, very famous character at the uh, first century before the Common Era. Since the destruction of the First Temple, there were two concurrent Jewish communities, one in Israel, but a much larger one in Babylon, where the vast majority of scholars lived. So, uh, for example, the name Ezra, we'll meet it again, Ezra was someone who was in Babylon and actually came back to Israel to help repopulate this, the Jewish community in Israel, then was called Judea, but to repopulate it with scholars and rabbis because there was an abundance of Torah scholars in Babylon and a paucity of Torah scholars in Israel. Hillel lived a very long life, 120 years, which we'll see is will be significant. And at the age of 40, he decided to come to Israel already an accomplished scholar, and the sources indicate that the reason why he came to Israel because he wanted to get variety in his Torah background. He was already a a tremendous scholar of note in Babylon, but in order to round out his scholarship, he went to Israel specifically to study under the tutelage of the great, the two twin towering leaders of the Jewish community in Israel, then called Judah or Judea, Shemaiah and Avtalion. At that time, the Jewish people were, were led by successive sets of what's called zugos. Zugos means partners. And these were the two leaders of the community. One of them was known as the Nasi, the president. And the other was known as the Avbetin, the, the head of the base, the head of the Sanhedrin. And together, they, those two would fill the religious and oftentimes uh, political leadership of the Jewish people and Hillel came to Israel, to Judah, to study under their leadership. Now, he was exceptionally poor. And we learn a story about his how poor he was from the Talmud in the book of Yoma on page 35b. And the Talmud is discussing the various excuses that people are going to give when they get to heaven. And the question, the first question that people, or one of the first questions that people are asked once they get to heaven is, did you study Torah? And if not, why did you not study, study Torah? So the Talmud tells that there's going to be three people, three groups of people that are going to come to heaven. Uh, the poor people, the wealthy people, and the sinful people. And they're all going to be asked the same question, why did you not study Torah? So the poor person is going to say, well, I was poor. I was so busy trying to make a living to pay for my family's needs that I didn't have time to study Torah. And the response that they're going to be asked is, well, were you more poor than Hillel? And yet Hillel found time to study Torah, despite the fact that he was inordinately poor. And the story that the, story that the Talmud goes on to say is that he was a woodchopper, and he would go out to the forest every day to chop wood and sell it. And he would earn an average day about a size, uh, it's a tropic, which is a kind of coin. And he would take the coin, and half of it would go to his family's expenses, and the other half would go to the nominal fee that was needed for admittance into the uh, into the house of scholarship of the sages. So every day he would take his earnings, half of it would go to his wife and kids, and the other half would go to pay to, to enter the yeshiva to go study under Shmaya and Avtalion. There was once, uh, it was a Friday, and it was snowing, it was very cold, and he was having, unsu- he was being unsuccessful in chopping down trees. It was very hard, back-breaking labor, but, you know, he did it every day, 
Yet this particular Friday he was unsuccessful and he had no money. So he gets to the yeshiva and he tries to go into study and the guard at the door says, I'm sorry, if you can't pay the nominal fee, it was a very small amount that they charge, if you can't pay that, you can't come in. Undeterred, he decides that there is actually a, a they had a, a ceiling window, a skylight that brought a natural light. So he climbed onto the roof and stuck his ear onto the window. So at least he could hear the murmurings of Torah, whatever he can make out uh, from that perch on top of the roof, which, of course, shows tremendous dedication. And he's listening, and it's Friday, and it's winter time, and it starts to snow. And it's snowing, and it's overnight. The scholars in the yeshiva, they don't notice because they're studying by candlelight, but it's morning time. And they notice that it's kind of dark. So Shemaya and Avtalion, Shemaya says Avtalion, Avtalion, the two, the two scholars, says every morning when we wait, when we, uh, when we, when it's, when it's the crack of dawn, there's a lot of light here. But today it seems to be a little bit cloudy, a little bit dark. Maybe it's dark outside. So they look up and they see the silhouette of Hillel, unconscious, listening in to their lecture. Quickly, they climb up. They find him under a pile of snow. Now, the halacha is you're not going to clear away snow on Shabbos, but if you're going to potentially save a life, then you would be allowed to. So they take him down, and they revive him, bring him back, warm him up, and then they declare, for someone like Hillel, who's so dedicated to Torah study, there's no better person in the world to desecrate the Shabbos to save there's a few interesting uh, takeaways from this story. First of all, it's Friday night, and what are the scholars doing? They're studying Torah. For how long? An hour, two hours? No. They're studying the entire night and into the next day. Just It gives a little bit of, of an insight into the standards or the norms of the Torah scholarship of the time. Really remarkable. And it wasn't just two scholars. It was two scholars with cadres of students listening in. So that's the first item of note. A second item of note is just, you know, Hillel himself. He, he traveled from Babylon to Israel to study Torah, and he's willing to give up half of his salary to get in on the lecture. Furthermore, one day he's not able to make it, and in his view, he's so entirely one-sided to the spiritual realm, it's as if they denied him food. And he's determined to feed himself, so to speak, spiritually, he climbed into the roof and he listens in. And he spent the better part of 40 years studying under Shemayin of Talion. Upon the death of Shemayin of Talion, he returned to Babylon. And ultimately, several years later, he's going to make his way back in remarkable fashion. The Talmud says that when Hillel came back to Bab- from Babylon to Israel, it's comparable to when Ezra, many years prior, came back from Babylon to Israel. The Gemara says in Sukkah, Reish Lakish is one of the great rabbis of the Talmud- Talmudic era, he says that when Torah was forgotten in Israel, Ezra came from Babylon and reestablished it. It got forgotten again 
and came Hillel, Habavli, Hillel the Babylonian, came back to Israel and once again reestablished Torah again. So we just learned about what it was like when Hillel was in Israel the first time. Tremendous scholarship, Shemayin of Talia, and studying the whole night. What happened in the interim? What's the backstory that prompted Hillel to leave Babylon once again and come back to Israel uh, to go uh, to go replenish the ranks of the Torah scholars in Israel. So there's a background to the story here. At that point in time, it was, it was a tremendous low point. The leader of Israel at the time was Herod, Herod the Great. And the backstory of Herod is that his father was Antipater, was the Roman procurator over Israel, and he appointed his son, Herod, the governor of the Galilee in the year 447 before the Common Era. Herod's about 25 years old. And the Galilee, throughout that whole period, was known for patriotism. They were the, the settlers, so to speak, the people that hated the notion of pagan Romans coming in and controlling Israel. It was always a hotbed of that kind of, of attitude. So uh, Herod is appointed to to be the governor of the Galilee, and right away there is tremendous resistance from the local population. They stop paying taxes, they start to organize, make underground movements to resist Rome and to resist the new leadership. And immediately Herod reveals his brutal nature. He rounds up many of the young idealistic patriots and together with their leaders, no trial, no judge and jury, and just executes them all. And the place was in an uproar. Can you imagine a a 25-year-old governor of the Galilee is now starting to execute local, uh, the local populace without any trial or rhyme or reason. So they started demanding that he be put up for trial for murder. The families of the victims, along with a lot of other Jews who lived in Israel at the time, they started lobbying very heavily that Herod be put up uh, for trial for his misdeeds. Eventually, the desire of the people uh, was so great that they forced to make this, they, they, they compelled them to make this trial. And Herod shows up to the Sanhedrin with all the great rabbis of the Sanhedrin. Herod shows up with an army. And he's dressed not as someone who is facing a life sentence, but he's dressed with royal purple robes, with all his garrisons with him. And... He said he's kind of like goading the uh, members of the of the justices. Come after me. Let's see what you got. And all of them start putting their heads down, not listening to any of the accusers, not willing to hear the the testimony of the people involved. And there's one man who, by the name of Shammai, who we'll meet again. He's one of the justices, and he gets up and he makes a very fantastic announcement. And in Josephus, he records the. Uh, the text of the speech that Shammai gives in front of the assembled in the courthouse. Members of the court, and you, O king, neither I nor you have ever seen an accused man appear before a court of law in such a manner. All the accused have come before the court have done so with trepidation and fear and dressed in black. But Herod, who was accused, who was accused of mass murder and was summoned here as a major criminal, has come before us dressed in purple, his hair festively groomed, escorted by soldiers to threaten us with death if we were to convict him. 
But I don't blame Herod, who wants to maintain his life rather than law. I blame you, the members of the court, and you, the and the king, and the leadership, who have permitted him to behave this way. Know then that God is mighty, and there will come a day when this man, whom you wish to acquit in order to find favor with Hyrcanus, who was the local guy in charge, will turn against you, and the king will punish you severely. He riles up with the court with this speech, and eventually all, they are all moved by his, uh, by his oratory, and they decide to try him, and they declare that Herod is guilty of murder and should be sentenced to death. The local leadership was able to delay the execution, and with help of corrupt authorities, in the middle of the night, Herod escaped, and went to Damascus. And the story goes, in Damascus, he ended up back in Rome. Eventually, he was declared by the Roman Senate as king of Judea. And ten years later, he comes back with a vengeance to try to avenge all the people, and all, especially all the rabbis, who tried to have him executed several years prior. And he would go on to rule Judea with an iron fist, for, from the year 37 to he finally died, four years before the Common Era. His reign was despotic and terror-filled. Like many dictators, he was notoriously paranoid. He would spy on his own people. And if there was any hint of rebellion, he would ruthlessly stamp it out. In order to bolster his credibility as king, he married one of the last women of the Hasmonean era. The Hasmonean were the Jewish kings. He married her. Her name was Miriam. He had a couple of kids with her. And then, of course, he got in his head that she was plotting against him, so he killed her. He killed his own kids. He killed his brother-in-law. But worst of all, he undertook a campaign to murder many rabbis. Some of them were burned alive in really horrible fashion. Uh, there's a famous story of Baba Ben Buta where he decided to gouge out his eyes. And then later on, he got dressed up and went incognito and started talking to Baba Ben Buta about Herod. And so Herod is now kind of interviewing the, the very man whose eyes he gouged out to see what are the thoughts of the Jews to kind of give more fuel to the fire of his campaign against the rabbis. And Baba Buta says, no, he, he's a teen, he's one of us, he has some problems, but we forgive him. And Herod was so shaken up that he, he was determined to go to the eyes of the Jewish people, i.e. the temple, which was then in shambles, a 350-year-old edifice, and he undertook a multi-year campaign to uh, refurbish the temple. Torah in Judea was under assault. The numbers of scholars were depleted. The numbers of public Torah teaching, those were minimized. And Hillel, who was then back in Babylon, along with other scholars, decided to go back to Israel, back to, to Judea, to replenish the reins of the Torah leader. So he comes back to Israel, and the Nasi, the, the leader, the political leader of the people, was a family by the name of ben, Bnei Becerra. And there was an episode where there was a law that was forgotten. In all the chaos, so many dead rabbis, what, hap- what happens is that the laws are forgotten. So there was a, a holiday of Passover. The day before Passover was, Yom, was Shabbos. And what happens in the temple the day before Passover? Everyone brings their, their sacrificial lambs, the Passover offering, the carbon Pesach, and they slaughter it. But it's Shabbos. Are you allowed to slaughter an animal Shabbos? 
they weren't sure. Normally, you're not allowed to kill animals in Shabbos. That's one of the 39 prohibited acts. But on regular Shabbases, there are four sacrifices that are brought in the temple every single week. So they weren't sure, does the law of the carbon Pesach supersede the law of Shabbos or not? And they, no one knew the answer. And Hillel says, oh, the new arrival from Babylon. He says, I have the answer. And he brings them three distinct proofs from a variety of sources. And they're so impressed with his command of Torah on the spot to be able to answer a very, you know, it's not a common question. It's a very strange question, a very uh, esoteric question. And they say, the, the B'nai B'seira, the Nasim, the presidents of the people, they say, okay, we're now voluntarily uh, abrogating our position and we want to have you instead. And the Talmud tells that there were three people uh, in history who forfeited their crown in this world but earned their crown in the next world. And one of them is the local Nasi of the, of the time, the B'nai B'seira. They had a crown. They were the leaders of the people. But when Hillel came and demonstrated his his tremendous knowledge and uh, command of Torah, they voluntarily gave it up to him. And Hillel, as a direct descendant of King David and the family of the Nassim of the presidents, they would essentially fill the role of king, you know, not quite in title, but in function of the Jewish people for more than 400 years. The house of Hillel and the Nasius would be part of his family all the way into the middle of the 5th century. And when he was in Israel, so he got back to Israel, Shammai, that heroic scholar that stood up to Herod many years prior, was the established Torah leader. He was the Av Beistin, and Hillel now became the Nasi, just like their teacher previously, previous their teachers together, Shmai and Avtalion, one of them was the head of the Sanhedrin, one of them was called the Nasi. Now Hillel and Shammai, their students, filled that role. And there's an interesting juncture in history that happens right over here. Previously, as we saw, when Hillel climbs onto the roof, Shmai and Aftalion are inside the room and they're teaching Torah together. To who? To all the assembled sages of Israel. All of Torah, greatness and leadership were all coalesced in one institution called, known as the Mesifta or Yeshiva. Shammai had his own institution. But Hillel, in order to avoid attracting the attention of Herod, who was suspicious of any concentration of power among the people, and certainly amongst the Torah leadership, Hillel established another house of scholarship independent of Shammai. So if you ever hear the name Beis Shammai or Beis Hillel, the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel, where that only shows up at this point in history. Because previously, the academy of the sages were all assembled in one institution. But now, for fear of Herod, they have two institutions. And these two institutions are going to continue for the duration of Hillel and Shammai's life before they are again reconvened. But this creates somewhat of a problem that whenever there is separation between Torah, it's like if someone's in their basement studying Torah, it's likely that they may come to a different conclusion than someone in his neighbor's, in his neighbor in his own basement, right? Because they're not studying together. So for the first time, we see a proliferation of disagreements amongst the Torah scholars because they're not in the same room to duke it out. You have, in one side of town, that 
the Academy of Shammai, on the other side of town you have the Academy of Hillel, and they're independent of each other, even though they're very cordial with each other, and there is some sort of interaction, but minimal, and therefore we have several hundred disagreements brought down in the Talmud, where the house of Shammai would declare one thing, the house of Hillel would declare something else, and we have grounds now for Machlotis. Previously, when the Nasi and the Avbezdin, the president and the head of the court, were always together, there was one centralized location, one central assembly of Torah, there was really no room for that to happen. Yeah, there was disagreement, but it was all adjudicated in that one facility. Now that there's two facilities, there's disagreements, and the disagreement will, will essentially continue for about 100 years until after the destruction of the Second Temple, when, again, the remnants of Torah leadership reconvene in the city called Yavne. And in Yavne, their goal was to take all the positions and all the disagreements that have developed and fermented over the years and find, once again, one core halacha that the Jewish people will uh, will observe by. Under the leadership of Shammai and Hillel, the numbers of scholars swelled. Not only the numbers, but also the quality of scholars. The Talmud tells us that Hillel had 80 main disciples. This is the Talmud in Sukkah, 28a. Hillel had 80 main disciples. 30 of them were so pious and such great scholars that it was worthy that the Shekhinah would rest upon them like the Shekhinah rested upon Moses. Another 30 were so righteous, so pious, and such great scholars that they was worthy, they were worthy to have the sun stop in its tracks like it did for Joshua. And the last 20, they were average. When average, we love to be average by their standards. And the Tama continues. The greatest amongst them was Yonasan ben Uzil. And if you open up any Chumash, you'll see there's a commentary of Yonasan ben Uzil in every Chumash. And the weakest of them, what, was, what does it look like to be the weakest of the 80 main students of, of Hillel? That's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the great leader of the Jewish people at the end of the Second Temple era. What was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai like? Everything in the world, every Torah, he had in abundance. He wasn't lacking anything in Torah. That was the most minor of the students. So if that's the most minor of the students, what's the most... Uh, terrific of the students. What is Yonas of Nazil? What was his greatness? When he would sit and stu- study Torah, every bird that flew above him would instantly combust and go up in a, in a pillar of smoke, a smoke and fire. That was, he had such power in his Torah that it evoked the Torah at Sinai. Just the Torah at Sinai was so powerful and wonderful that there was fire everywhere. So too, when he studied Torah, he was able to recapture that spirit. And it was unfortunately a, a fly, flying hazard for flying fowl. Now, we don't know much about Hillel's political enactments, but there's one very famous one that the Talmud tells us in the book of Gittin. The halacha is that personal loans that are active during the end of the Shemitah year, so every seven years of Shemitah, at the end of the Shemitah year, all personal loans are brought back to zero. That's the law of the Torah. Torah says, I lend someone money, and the Shemitah comes, he no longer owns me anything. So what would happen? People would say, well, it's the end of the Shemitah year, 
I'm closing up my shop of free loan society. I'm not loaning anyone anything. That's what would happen. Problem is, the Torah says that is a, there's a prohibition against someone refusing to loan towards the end of the Shemitah year because they're steered that the Shemitah will annul their loan. So you have to lend anyhow. But Hill noticed the people were not fulfilling this mitzvah. They were loaning money, but once it got anywhere near the end of the Shemitah year, they would refrain, sorry, I'm not, I'll see you in a year. I'll see you after the year's over when I'll have seven years to try to recoup the money. The problem is that there were masses of people that were transgressing a Torah law. The Torah law is very clear that even though the end of the Shemitah year is coming, you still have to lend out money. So what Hillel did, he standardized and popularized a loophole. The loophole is known as the Pruz Bowl. And what he, the reason why he did this was to uphold the Torah. Talmud tells us, Hillel Tikin Pruz Bowl, Hillel enacted the Pruz Bowl, the Pnei Tikun Olam, in order to perfect the world. And what this in effect did, it was, uh, it outsourced the loan to the court. So if I lend Dave money and it's, and then I write a Pruz Bowl, the Pruz Bowl is me giving over the rights to withdraw the money to a third party, the court. And the halacha is that only personal loans are annulled at the end of the year, but not loans to an institution like the court. And therefore, they become my proxy. So after the year of Shemitah is over, I can still come and collect because now you're, you're quote unquote owing it to them. And this loophole was in existence prior. What Hillel, Hillel did, he only promulgated, he standardized it. He made it, this is what people do. And till this day, the year, the, the Rosh Hashanah, the day before Rosh Hashanah on, of the Shemitah year, everyone writes the Prusbol to make sure that all the loans that they have outstanding to other people are not annulled. And it's interesting, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a historical note that the term Mipnei Tikkun Olam, because of fixing the world, has been sort of usurped in modern times. The reason why it's popular in certain segments of the Jewish community is because what it seems like as an outsider was that Hillel was able to suspend certain Torah laws because of Tikkun Olam. So unfortunately, people have taken this as a liberty, sort of revisionist history, as a liberty to say that if Hillel could do that, if Hillel could change the Torah, so to speak, of because of Tikkun Olam, then we could do the same. The only problem is, there's two problems. First of all, the motive of Hillel was not to eradicate Torah, but to uphold it. And specifically because people were not fulfilling Torah, he made his enactment, number one. Number two, he doesn't, he didn't create any new realm, any new law. He just popularized the loophole that was already present prior. And thus, to use this argument that Hillel did it, Tikkun Olam, we can do whatever we want with Torah today because Tikkun Olam, it's, uh, it has no basis. Now, Hillel was a man of incredible personal piety and patience and character. The Talmud tells that a story about him that the, that the verse tells us that when you give charity to someone, to whom do you give? You have people who have needs. Well, what, do you give them the minimum of the needs or the maximum of their needs? So the verse tells us you have to give day machsor. You have to give as much as they're lacking. Whatever they're lacking, you have to fill. So suppose someone was really wealthy and they got used to having a chauffeur drive them in a fancy limo. 
And now they lost all their money, they went bankrupt. What do they need? Their needs changed. They don't need the basic minimum survival, have crusty bread and a few drops of water. They actually became accustomed to needing a limo with the driver and the white gloves. So the halacha is, to pay for someone's limo, that would be charity. You have, to, you have to give them whatever they need. So what happened with Hillel? Hillel taught that you have to even buy a horse for him to ride. Not only that, they would have criers. They'd have slaves that would go and announce the arrival of the dignitary before him. So what happened? There was once a poor person who was a, who used to be very wealthy, and Hillel wanted to fulfill the mitzvah, but there was no slave to hire. So Hillel himself went announcing, here comes the, you know, behold, here he, here he arrives, this said <laughs> dignitary, to fulfill the mitzvah of giving charity. There's a lot of famous stories uh, about Hillel's patience. The Talmud tells that there were two people who had a bet. They made a wager. 400 zuz, which was a lot of money at the time, whether or not someone could agitate Hillel. So the guy said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to find a way to agitate him. So what did he do? He waited till it was Friday. Friday late in the afternoon. Hillel's bathing. Like all good Jews, he got to take a shower before Shabbos. And he goes to his town, to his street, and he starts announcing, where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? I have a question for him. So Hillel is middle taking a shower. He he's, hears someone saying, where is Hillel? He quickly jumps out of the shower, takes a towel, cleans, cleans himself up, and runs outside in his robe to see what this person needs. And he says, what do you need? What do you need? He says, well, I have a question for you. Ask, please, my son. So he says, how come the heads of the Babylonians are oval? They're a little bit misshapen. How come their heads are a little bit misshapen? And he says, oh, my son, you asked a very good question. You know why their heads are a little bit misshapen? Because they don't have skilled midwives. The midwives don't take a good care of navigating the child into this world, and therefore their heads are a little bit misshapen. And Hillel goes back into his shower. That's the beginning of the story. So it's interesting that he, he doesn't... Hillel was the most famous Jew of the time. For someone to say, who is Hillel is insane. But this guy figured the best way to rankle Hillel would be to say, who is, I never heard of Hillel. Who's Hillel? You've heard of him? I never heard of him. Who is Hillel? Who is Hillel? Not only that, he comes in the busiest time of the week and asks him the most nonsensical question as a way, can you imagine someone wasting your time? You're middle showering. He pulls you out of your shower and Arab Shabbos, day before Shabbos, to ask you why the heads of the Babylonians oval? Crazy. For sure that will agitate him. And Hillel's no good question. And he answers him. The guy waits a little bit. And he goes out back to the street after Hill's back in the shower. Where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? Hillel once again gets dressed, goes out to him, says, what do you need? He says, oh, I have a question. You have a question? What's your question? Why are the eyes of the Tarmudians, which according to one translation I've seen is the Ethiopians, why are their eyes bleary? She says, ah, that's a very good question. You know why? Because they live in the sand and desert. And the sun reflects against the sand in their eyes and causes their eyes to tear a bit. Good question. Here's his answer. Once again, Hillel goes back 
into his shower, and the guy waits a little bit longer. He screams again, where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? Hillel gets dressed up again. What do you need? I have a question. Ask, please, how come the legs of the Africans are wide? And he says, that's a good question. The reason why is because they live in the water, and it'll prevent them from drowning. This guy's like, okay, I'm I'm not going to trick him. And he tells him, I have a lot of questions, but I'm worried that you'll get angry at me. I have a lot of these kinds of questions. So Hillel tells him, no, I have all the patience, all the time in the world. Ask every question you have. Any question you have, I'll sit in and I'll answer it. The guy realized he's defeated. There's no way he could possibly agitate Hillel. And he says to him, you're Hillel that is known as the Nasi, the president, the prince of Israel? He says, yes. He says, well, I don't like you. And I don't think there should be any more people like you. He says, why? He says, because I lost the bet and now I'm down 400 zuz. And he tells him, he responds, he says, you should work on your character. And my character is so important that I don't want to, I don't want to compromise on my character, even if it means that you're going to lose 400 zuz. Someone like that, he's the representation of the Jewish people. And he develops a fame. He develops celebrity. Everyone knows, everyone's talking to each other. There is this Jew. No matter what you say to him, he'll never get mad at you. A tremendous scholar, humble, totally dedicated. By the way, he was still poor. Even though he was the prince of Israel, he refused to accept anyone's donations. And that made Judaism and the Jewish people find a lot of favor in the eyes of the local non-Jewish population. So, legions of prospective converts descended upon the yeshiva and say, where do we sign? How do we join this wonderful nation? Because it has people like Hillel at the helm. So the Talmud tells that one such non-Jew showed up to the yeshiva, he, he googled the yeshiva, and he ended up in the wrong one. He ended up with Shammai. So he walks in the door and he says, I want to talk to the head of the yeshiva. And... He tells him, okay, I, w- I want to convert, but I have a few questions. He says, okay, how many Torahs do you have? He says, two, the written Torah, the oral Torah. So the non-Jews, the brazen prospective convert says, I believe in the written Torah. I don't believe in the oral Torah. Still teach, make me Jewish, still convert me. You wasted my time, says Shammai, with this nonsense. He starts screaming at him, and the guy runs away. Someone tells him, maybe try the yeshiva down the block. He goes down the block and presents the same argument to Hillel. And Hillel says, okay, I'll, I'll convert you. He converts him. And then, okay, you have to go to your lessons. What's your lessons? So he says, okay, well, you got to learn the alphabet. You got to learn the Hebrew alphabet. She says, this is an aleph, and this is the sound that it makes, and this is a bet, and this is the sound it makes, and gimel, and dalit, etc. Do your homework. Tomorrow, come back for your second lesson. So the guy memorizes it the whole night and comes back. Hill says, are you ready for your next lesson? Hill says, okay, this is an aleph, and he shows him a bet. This is a bet. He shows him a dollar. This is a dollar. He switches everything around. And the guy's like, wait a minute, wait a slow down. Yesterday, you told me, the other, you flipped it. What's going on over here? He says, oh, wait a minute. You want to read the written Torah without the oral Torah. How do you even know what the letters, what the order of the letters are, what sounds they make, if you don't believe 
the oral Torah tradition. Hillel found an ingenious way to show him, to demonstrate that oral Torah are essential and immutable and incontrovertible and they're necessary. And the guy gets it. Oh yeah, of course, you have to have oral Torah and I'll join the fold entirely. There's another story, a story that uh, has been hijacked as the terminology of the golden rule, if you've ever heard of that. The golden rule was originated by Hillel, and not only that, was fully observed and behaved by this principle was Hillel, and it was uh, usurped and commandeered uh, by the early Christians because they would use that as a way to get their converts, so to speak. So the story goes, is from the Talmud and Shabbos, a non-Jew goes to Shammai again, makes that mistake, and Shammai tells it, and he says, oh, I want to study Torah, I want to become Jewish, but teach me all of Torah while I'm balancing on one leg. What kind of mockery you're making here? You want to study Torah on one leg? He's like screaming at him, get out of here, we're trying to study Torah, we're being serious, what are you doing? And he leaves, he goes in front of Hillel, and Hillel tells him the following statement, which is a reformulation of as yourself. This is all of Torah. Everything else is commentary. Zil, Gomorrah, go learn. Very famous idea that uh, was, was taken over by other religions and other peoples and other ideologists, the golden rule. But this is, this is where it originates. That somehow all of Torah is encapsulated in this one mitzvah of loving your fellow as yourself. A third story the Talmud tells that a non-Jew was walking by the house of scholarship and he overhears the discussion inside and they're talking about the beautiful garments of the of the Kohen Gadol, of the, of the holy priest in Jerusalem, describing such beautiful and ornate design of the various garments and he's so entranced and he says goes in front of once again goes to Hillel and says I want to join the Jewish people but I have a condition what's his condition I want that once I join I'll become the high priest and be able to wear those beautiful garments Shammai is just apoplectic with him and he says <laughs> get out of here don't waste my time what kind of nonsense and he gets him out of there. And he comes before Hillel, and Hillel converts him. And But after he says, well, okay, you want to be the high priest, you got to learn the laws. You can't have someone who ascends to the leadership without knowing what to do. So let's start studying. So they start studying, and they get to the verse that says that if there is a non-Kohen that brings a sacrifice in the temple, they get executed. So this new Jew says, well, who is this Who is this speaking about? He says, well, it's even speaking about King David. King David wasn't a Kohen. If King David himself, the greatest king we've ever had, wants to bring a sacrifice as a Kohen, he too gets executed. So this now, this new convert, he recognizes, he says, wait a minute, if this is told about King David, certainly it's about me, and he is able, uh, and he was able to kind of join without any of his... Uh, crazy shenanigans, and once again we see Hillel's tremendous ingenuity and cleverness and also patience on bright display. To be clear, Shammai was a man of remarkable character as well. But Hillel and Shammai, they actually had a very 
a very kind of specific disagreement. Everyone agrees you have to have fine character. Shammai seems to be pushing these people away, but they argued, should a Torah teacher be humble, even if it means that the dignity of Torah itself is being compromised? This guy, non-Jew, strolls into the house of scholarship and says, teach me Torah, this trying to, who are you? You're nothing. Are we coming in and trying to teach the seasoned scholars about your ideas of written Torah and oral Torah? You're an absolute nothing, right? Who are you? You're nobody. That's what Shammai says. You're coming to talk about Torah as if you're an equal and a peer with the great scholars? So he kicked them out. And Hill looked him and said, no, the humility of a Torah teacher has to extend to every scenario. You have to always be humble. That was their only disagreement. And what does the verse tell us? That you have to be like Hillel. Even in an instance where the dignity of the Torah is, so to speak, under attack, you have to be humble as well, like Hillel. Hillel and his students succeeded in what they set out to do, to teach Torah, to bring back the glory of Torah back to Israel. And... The Torah that we have really comes from the house of Hillel, from Beishamai. Many of his students went on. Uh, after they died, by the way, they remerged together. And Torah uh, lived to see another the day, thanks uh, to Hillel and Shammai. There's some lessons here. The, the Mishnah, the chapters of the fathers, gives a whole list of teachings from Hillel. I want to go through a few of them. They just get a little flavor of what he taught, and by the way, what he personified in his behavior. Because everything, or every teaching that is found in the chapters of the fathers was not just the ideas that the authors of those teachings had, but rather the ideas that those authors of those teachings lived by and behaved by. So Hillel says, you should be like the student from the students of Aaron. What does that mean? Someone who loves peace? someone who pursues peace, someone who loves humanity and brings them close to Torah. We see indeed how he fulfilled that in his behavior. Lastly, Hillel taught very sternly, do not separate yourself from the community. Don't believe in yourself to the day you die. A lot of us have a tendency to get complacent, to say, well, I'm at the promised land. I know I'm a Torah scholar. Uh, I'm a great person. I give charity. I'm, I'm good, says Hillel. Never, never, never take your foot off the gas. Never kind of start mailing it in. Right? You have to always try to strive to become to to improve and become better. And lastly, do not judge others until you reach their place. I would perhaps say that this is another. All these things are manifestations of his golden rule, all of Torah on one leg. If you actually take that idea of all of Torah on one leg and really flesh it out, what does it mean to love others as yourself? All the lessons of Hillen and indeed all the lessons of Torah, both interpersonal and between men and God, are found in there. The Talmud tells that there were four great scholars and leaders of the Jewish people that lived to be 120 years old. Moses, Hillel, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was Hillel's minor student, and Rabbi Akiva. And it says, Moshe was in Egypt for 40 years, he was in Midian for 40 years, and he led the Jewish people for 40 years. Hillel was in Babylon for 40 years, he studied under the leadership of Shammai and Aftalion for an additional 40 years, and for the last 
40 years of his life, he led the people as well. When the Torah, the Talmud, compares you to Moshe, we know that the influence that you have really towered over the people. Indeed, Hillel and Shammai as well, but Hillel, more than anyone else of his time, really ensured the Torah would flourish and inspired and continues to inspire the Jewish people until this very day.